0: Blue Nile.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome
1: to Murder Mile. A true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk, featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within one square mile of the West End. Today's episode is about George Thomas Pickering, a hard-working husband and doting father of three, who was the epitome of a Jekyll and Hyde character, and whose mania, led him to brutally slay a Soho sex worker called Rosa O'Neill. And yet, why he killed her remains the real mystery. Murder Mile contains upsetting details, which may cause the easily startled to spew, as well as realistic sounds, so that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 39 George Thomas Pickering, The Silent Killer. Today, I'm standing on Brewer Street in Soho, W1. One road north of the White Horse Public House where Larry Winters gunned down Paddy O'Keefe, one road west of the bombing of the Admiral Duncan and two roads north of the unsolved killing of police informer Black Rita, coming soon to Murder Mile. Originally called Wells Street, although this single-lane side street is barely 1,200 feet long, As home to the now defunct and demolished Ayres and Davies breweries, Wells Street was renamed Brewer Street. But for at least the last century, being crammed full of seedy sex shops and sweaty strip joints, all of which are occupied by spunky-handed willy-fiddlers in dirty flashing Macs, surely it's time to rename this mucky Soho backstreet with a more appropriate moniker, like Pervert's Parade, Wanker's Way, Spooge Street, or Jizzy Junction. Today, number 12 Brewer Street is called Soho's original bookshop, and as a deeply dull, three-storey, brown brick building. Instantly, your eyes are drawn to its dark green, wooden facade on the ground floor, and its garish neon signs which flash forth with words like sex shop and triple X. Featuring a wealth of arty erotica for the more discerning pervert, downstairs is a veritable pornucopia of mucky mags, dirty DVDs, pep pills for your Percy Plonker, vavavoom juice for your vajayjay, and chocolate mousse for your rusty bullet hole. As well as all manner of strange shit with spikes, crazy crap with clamps, and if you've got £150 to spare, a life sized and very realistic rubber bumhole. Apparently. And yet, as much as this building is synonymous with sex, it's also the home of death. As it was here, on Monday the seventh of october nineteen sixty three, in the first floor flat of number twelve Brewer Street, that Rosa O'Neill was savagely slaughtered by a silent killer. On Tuesday the nineteenth of november nineteen sixty three, in the cold sterile surgery of Brixton Prison, Dressed in oversized prison fatigues and a pair of slip-on shoes, sat 26-year-old George Thomas Pickering. With short curly brown hair, a cheeky grin, and arched eyebrows, which gave his impish little face an eternally surprised expression, being barely 5 foot and 6 inches tall, George didn't look like a major criminal, and yet... As a category A prisoner, he was considered one of the worst. George? Dr. F.H. Brisby, the medical officer, asked. But as the prisoner's bloodshot eyes glared down at his guilt-ridden hands, he ignored him. But not owing to ignorance or the arrogance of a hardened con who refused to spill the beans to a screw, but because George was trapped in a world of silence. As being both deaf and mute, George heard no words and could say nothing in reply. George, Dr. Brisby asked, as he softly tapped the tearful prisoner's shoulder, stirring this broken man from those bloody visions forever burned into his retina. George, that day... Did you know what you were doing? He asked. But George didn't reply. Not as a false ruse, to secure an insanity plea, a ploy which his lawyer had toyed with, and the prison warden had taken seriously, having confiscated his belt, his tie, his shoelaces, and placed him for the last six weeks on suicide watch. But the delay was solely, so his interpreter could translate the words that he could neither hear nor speak. But being polite, Dr. Brisby got the reply he expected, as George simply nodded, Yes. George, did you know it was wrong? Dr. Brisby asked. As being eight days away from his murder trial at the Old Bailey, the doctor's question would be the difference between life and a death sentence. George simply nodded, yes. And yet, in a police investigation, which was short, swift, and thrift, although George's guilt was guaranteed, one question remained unanswered. George, if you knew all that, then why did you murder Rosa O'Neill In the ungodly hours of the 21st of February 1937, a high-pitched scream wailed down the maternity ward at Stanmore Hospital. But this was not a cry of death, but of birth. And with his vocal cords set to loud, and two fully functional ears, which heard his beloved mother slowly soothe her baby boy to sleep, into the world came George Thomas Pickering, and he was perfect in every way. Hailing from the seaside town of Scarborough in Yorkshire, Margaret and Reginald Pickering were two doting parents to their beloved son, George. And with no history of disability, criminality or mental illness in the family, these were good people, solid, proud and stoic. But for the Pickering family, a major test was yet to come. After weeks of stiffness, dizziness, insomnia and vomiting, four-year-old George was rushed to hospital, gripped in a fit of fever, as bacterial meningitis strangled his spinal cord and, like a halo of death, slowly crushed his brain. And although his young life was saved by antibiotics, by the time he'd left hospital, the damage had been done. And being left deaf, mute, and crippled by chronic headaches, the last sound that George ever uttered or heard were his own tears as his whole world descended into silence. Eager to ensure that their son wasn't hindered by his disabilities and that he'd retain his confidence, pride and independence, Margaret and Reginald enrolled George at the Royal Deaf and Dumb School in Margate on England's south coast, where he learned to sign, made new friends and as a better-than-average student, he left school aged 16 with a lust for life and a passion for woodwork. And as a solid young man who did his parents proud, George lived a very normal, happy and productive life. Having graduated, George trained as a carpenter for Kodak in Northwest London. But as a recently married man and father to twin daughters and soon a son, Eager to be near his family, George uprooted and found new employment at Humphreys, a furniture maker's in New Malden. Life was good. He had an honest job, three healthy children, and lived in a delightful little terraced house on a pleasant tree lined street at No. 15 Oxford Avenue, with his wife Beryl, who was also deaf and mute. And although he had cheated death and coped with disability, the meningitis had done its damage. And being crippled by headaches, the older he got, the worse they became. And as his painkillers proved pointless, they were quickly replaced by alcohol to quell his pain. But like all drugs, drink, had its downside. On the 20th of February 1957, George was arrested for being drunken disorderly, causing willful damage and inflicting grievous bodily harm in an unprovoked attack. He was bound over by the courts for two years. On the 15th of August 1961, George smashed up his furniture at work with an axe and was committed to Shenley Psychiatric Hospital, where even though he was tearful, tense and complained of being racked with deep bouts of depression, suicidal thoughts and unnaturally violent urges, he was discharged after just 24 hours and the incident was blamed on drink. Four weeks later, whilst heavily intoxicated, George was arrested for inflicting grievous bodily harm in an unprovoked attack on a West End prostitute. He was sentenced to two months in prison. Later that year, whilst carving up the Christmas turkey, George had to be physically restrained by his family, as in an unprovoked fit of depression and rage, he tried to slit open his wrists. Prior to his murder trial, George said to Dr F. H. Brisby at Brixton Prison that he felt like Jekyll and Hyde, part man and part monster, with one side of him as a good father and a loyal husband, and the other side was a violent, drunken, homicidal maniac. Desperate to quell his uncontrollably violent urges, George quit drinking, and for almost a year, life returned to normal. But without a steady hit of booze to dull the incessant throbbing in his head, his insomnia increased, his depression darkened, and suicide seemed a better prospect than living. Two years later, being at his wit's end, George Thomas Pickering made the unfortunate decision to take his own life. But strangely, it wasn't he who would ultimately end up dead. The following is based on the original police investigation files, Autopsy report, witness statements, and George's own hazy and confused recollection of the events that day. So, some details are patchy. By the morning of Monday, the 7th of October 1963, George hadn't slept for three whole days. And although his kids cried, With wide cracked eyes which glared vacantly at the ceiling. The only sound he heard was a dull thud as blood erratically pumped from his fluctuating heart to his throbbing head. Feeling like his body was a dead weight. With his head like lead. His feet like they were stuck in peat. And his limp arms like they were anchored to the bed. George lay prostrate, an empty, hollow man devoid of hope. But as a good dad, with bills to pay and mouth to feed, as George crawled out of bed and his lifeless legs thudded to the floor, he didn't feel like he normally did. He felt strange. It started like any ordinary day only slower and less certain as all he could think of was his own death. For the last time he hugged his kids their voices he had never heard before and their sweet faces he would never see again. And as his soundless lips softly kissed Beryl's cheek he left his home for the very last time, never to return. At 7.30am, George walked out of 15 Oxford Avenue and trudged south to Kingston Road. The sky was dull, grey and full of foreboding as dark ominous clouds loomed large. And as the interminable British drizzle soaked him to the bone... On any other day, he would have turned right and headed off to work at Humphreys. But in a rash decision, which would ruin his life forever, he turned left. At 7.45am, as he stood alone on the packed platform of Raines Park Station, isolated and trapped in a solitary silent world, Feeling the violent rumble under his feet as the train thundered near, as he stared at the bare track, he pictured 200 tons of roaring steel wheels slicing over his soft neck, severing his head and leaving behind a lifeless bloody stump. But his feet wouldn't budge. By 8.10 a.m., as his train sidled into Waterloo Station, George lumbered aimlessly towards a strand on the south side of the West End. But with his full focus being on what way was best to meet his death, as the hard heavy thump of his boots sent a dull throbbing pain to his brain, with his every movement making him even more nauseous, Although he'd been teetotal for weeks his only thought was the pain-free lure of liquor. And then for the next three hours George disappeared. No one knows where he went or what he did not even he but with every pub and off-license closed until lunch at 11am By the time that he had stumbled into Soho, George was drunk. And being part man and part monster, as the meek, mild and timid man within slunk into the shadows, the other side of his Jekyll and Hyde took over. At a little after 11.30am, having staggered past the White Horse pub, and stumbled into Edward Roshenko, an off-licence at 33 Shaftesbury Avenue. Having handed over 17 shillings, the only sound that George heard was a heavy gulping as he necked back great glugs of 66% proof vodka. Being deaf, dumb and now blind drunk, George stumbled into the garish neon haze of the nearby Cameo Moulin cinema to watch Women by Night, a tawdry sexploitation film full of tits, tush and tassels. But as his glazed over eyes gazed at the soundless screen, ogling bums and boobs, amongst a salty sea of sad bastards, whose hands bobbed in their pants, like they'd all lost their last pound. George hated what he saw, where he was, and who he had become. And as his suicidal thoughts stewed, so too were his unnatural urges and strange stirrings within. As bubbling to the surface came a hatred, a rage, and an uncontrollable desire for violence. Desperate to die, at a little after 1pm, George staggered into Cutler's toolmakers at 52 Brewer Street. He pointed to a shiny stainless steel blade, and having handed over 10 shillings, he stumbled out into the bustle of Brewer Street, one step nearer to slitting his wrists. What happened next is debatable, as with no slashes on his arms, cuts to his neck, or puncture wounds on his body, George suddenly decided to forego his suicide, and instead headed east. To number 12 Brewer Street, where Soho's original bookshop now sits, and where George would fulfill a very different and uncontrollable urge. On the ground floor, to the left of the store, was a black wooden door. Instinctively, although he would never hear it, George rung the bell and waited in the doorway as he swayed unsteadily on his feet. Opened by the housekeeper, Sophie Georgina Willis, without a sound, just a smile, she ushered him up to the first floor, with a wave which said, You know the way. Having visited her several times prior, George always liked Rosa... As being one of the few Soho sex workers who didn't mock, pity, or shun him, he liked Rosa. And with no airs, no graces, and no pretence, to many young men, she was just a nice lady. As George drunkenly stumbled up the white wooden staircase, bouncing off the floral wallpaper, and almost tripping up over the soft green carpeting underfoot, at the top of the stairs stood Rosa O'Neill. Being five foot four at a push, fourteen stone at her lightest, and with a motherly yet matronly face, dressed in a pink quilted dressing gown and slippers, she smiled and welcomed him in. But being part man, and part monster, with the meek, mild, and timid man having shifted into the shadows, and the other side of this Jekyll and Hyde now making strange stirrings within. As from his heart to his head, his blood heavily thumped, inside pumped a dark and hollow rage. George would later state, I don't know what happened, I I just went berserk. With his eyes wild and his knuckles white, from inside of his blue corduroy jacket, George pulled the filleting knife. With his left hand, having roughly grabbed the scruff of her bathrobe to steady his terrified target, having raised the blade high, he plunged the full length of the six-inch steel Deep into the left of Rosa's chest. And using all of his force, anger, hatred, and rage, he repeatedly stabbed the sliver of stainless steel into her torso, slashing at her flailing arms and slicing her splayed fingers, as the bloodied blade sunk four inches deep into her right lung, her liver and her gut. Desperate to fight off, her frenzied attacker, as Rosa shoved her short assassin over the soft green carpeting underneath, George stumbled, and as his sticky red hands left thick bloody smears over the white wood, Rosa slammed the door shut, and George fled. As her housekeeper rang the alarm, Rosa lay face up on the bed, a damp flannel on her forehead to cool her sweaty brow. As wrapped in a duvet, she was suddenly gripped with the icy cold chill as slowly her body drained of blood. And although they had called for a doctor, by the time that he had arrived, just seven minutes later, Rosa O'Neill Was dead. Although the previous day was a booze soaked blur, seeing his clothes crumpled on the floor, his dirty corduroy caked in crusted blood, George realised he had done something truly awful. And being wrecked with guilt, having unsuccessfully tried to kill himself, by swallowing 300 aspirins, George handed himself in at Wimbledon Police Station. Having fully confessed to the crime, with a wealth of evidence, and having been identified by three witnesses, on the 27th of November 1963, George Thomas Pickering was found guilty of manslaughter by reason of diminished responsibility and was sentenced to life in prison. Four years later, eager to quell the thundering headaches which had haunted his every waking moment since the spinal meningitis had robbed him of all speech and sound. On Tuesday the 8th of May 1967, in the D-Wing rec room of Wormwood Scrubs Prison, having no access to alcohol to halt the incessant hammering in his head, George drank a homemade cocktail made from orange juice And copier fluid. And as the mix of acetone and methylated spirits inflamed his stomach, drowned his lungs, and as he drifted into a coma, having already been rendered deaf and mute by illness, in a sad twist of irony, the booze which blocked the throbbing in his brain had robbed him of another sense and rendered him blind. And after a slow and agonizing death, which lasted almost a week, on Sunday, the 14th of May 1967, George Thomas Pickering died of alcohol poisoning. And once again, his whole world was silent. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. And if you're ever in London, why not book a ticket onto my 5 star rated Murder Mile walks? It's a guided walk of Soho's most infamous murder cases. You also get to see my big fat bald head, and you get to say, oh, is that what he looks like? Ah, that's a shame. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself. With the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for
2: listening, and sleep well. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care.
0: For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
1: Good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning to you. Of course, if this is an afternoon, then I should really be saying good afternoon. Or if it's the evening, good evening. So really, that song didn't make any sense at all. Why did I do it? I have no idea. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Murder Mile uh murder mile not murder mile extra mile see for new people that would be cut out instantly because see i'm not going off script this is unscripted unedited uh there's no music there's no sounds this is just me talking about uh, the case we just discussed it's not compulsory you don't have to listen to it you can switch off if you want to you probably already have <laughs> you probably already have by that point you probably listened to the adverts if there was adverts and gone ugh, adverts boring Ugh. Uh, but if you're uh, looking for more details about the case obviously there's a lot of things that I can't discuss in the story because it slows down the story so I save it for extra mile uh, so this is for those lovely lovely patient people who are like I want to listen to extra mile lots of people enjoy extra mile I, th- I don't I get it I, I do get it in a way I get it because it's entirely different to the first part and it's very it's a very honest part do you know it's un I think everyone who listens to it on a regular basis knows it. it's very honest. I I keep everything in. It's not contrived. I don't sit down and plan anything. I have a couple of little notes in front of me just to uh, because my brain is I have a very awful uh, attention span. I get very distracted. I'm not very good at remembering things. Which is odd, considering my job, but I have a very retentive memory for other stuff as well, so I forgot what I was talking about so uh, <laughs> so murder mile really is it 's for you guys if, if you if you uh, enjoy all these extra details, then uh, this is why extra mile is here. I find it quite therapeutic as well. I quite enjoy it after the having to write and research and concentrate and rehearse the lines to try and get it as near as possible so I don't, because as a dyslexic, I tend to stutter over things. Um, that that re- recording wasn't too bad, actually. Uh, although it is a very hot day, it's 31 degrees in the boat today. Uh, uh, I had to close all the windows and doors to block out the sound, because obviously, because it's a nice sunny day outside, every single... Ugh! bastard who has too much money has decided to buy themselves a crappy little airplane like a little two-seater or one-seater or they're all out today and because they don't know how to navigate they know how to fly but they don't know how to navigate they use the canal to guide them from the small airfields up in Middlesex and Essex where I am down into uh they fly over the city of London so they're all out today but there doesn't seem to be any now Which is always the way with Extra Mile. So Extra Mile. Let's dive into this case. Uh, This was. I was about to say Larry Winters. It's not. Uh, (laughs) God. I'm doing too many cases at the same time. Uh, This is the story of George Thomas Pickering. uh, 26 year old man who was deaf and mute. owing to spinal meningitis when he was four years old. Which I thought was an interesting detail. When I was going through the case. uh, I was like. uh, I was like. Oh I wonder. When I found that detail, I was like, oh, God, that's fantastic. Let me back up the truck a little bit. I found this case solely because um, because I have to go past Brewer Street all the time on my tours. And, you know, uh, obviously, you know, it's near all of the murder locations. I thought to myself, given the fact that it was a street synonymous with, like, sex workers and sex shops and perverts and all stuff like that. I thought there's got to be a murder on Brewer Street. So I was in the National Archives and I typed in into their search database, it was Brewer Street Murder. And there it was. It was a murder I'd never heard of, which is George Thomas Pickering murdered Rosa O'Neill. Didn't know anything about it. Grabbed the murder file, which is what I love doing. I love just opening up the file, knowing nothing about the case except date and location, which for me is a good start. Do you know, that means the high chance it will be on the podcast, unless it's shit. Uh, some podcasts I've re- some episodes I've researched and they will not end up on the podcast because they're boring. Uh, but this one I found interesting, I was like, okay, it's an interesting case, going through all the details, and then when I found out he was deaf and mute, I was like, okay, I'm in, I'm in. I think that that makes for a nice, different kind of murderer, someone who can't hear, and can't, you know, has lost his own ability to communicate with everyone else around him, and can only really communicate with people who, are, who can sign. Um, so uh okay, uh there was a technical detail I've put in there that which I should probably clarify uh I mentioned that when he was first arrested for being drunk and disorderly, oh look a little boat going past sounds good it has got nice 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 engine, nice little hum on it. Right, uh, he <laughs> see, easily distracted. Um, he was so when he was first arrested for uh being drunk and disorderly, um, uh, he was instead of being sent to prison because it was a first offense, he was bound over by the courts for two years. Now, what they bound over is kind of an, an, an old technical term, and what it means is basically he was put on probation because it was a first offense instead of sending him to prison. Uh, what they say is, right, the judge says you've committed this offence, if you commit another offence within this period of time, so within two years, the punishment will be worse, you will serve the punishment for that crime and this but this crime combined. Uh, but he didn't, as far as we know, he didn't commit another offence, so that was him being bound over. Thought I'd explain that. Um, interestingly, when he was arrested on the third time, so he smashed up his work at Kodak, which was interesting, that his work actually took him back, but he they, well he said he they took they took him back even though he smashed up all his uh, furniture at work and then he was put into shenley psychiatric hospital for about 24 hours they he said he t- they took him back but according to my details he he started at humphrey's the furniture makers uh about two weeks after that so whether they took him back or whether he resigned i don't know this is one detail i can't work out but okay on the third occasion when he attacked the prostitute the west end prostitute uh he had to serve two months in prison he served only one and that was in brixton prison now i didn't mention this in the story because it kind of i realized that going back and forth between dates it kind of confuses things quite often um but on so this was 1961 two years before he murdered rosa o'neill uh he was in Brixton Prison, serving time there. Doctor F. H. Brisby. I hope you enjoyed that accent that I tried to pull off. Then that was a, that was a, a kind of a light Sean Connery. <laughs> George. <laughs> pro- I'm probably going to have to redo that because it probably sounds shit. But Doctor F. H. Brisby examined George two years prior to the murder in uh, his surgery in Brixton Prison. Um. And he gave him an EKG, so like, uh, you know, the uh, the heart monitor thing, so he can do a readout of his heart. And he noticed that George had an, uh, an irregular heart rate, uh, which was consistent with those who suffer with violent uh, urges or, or, or suffer from violent behaviour. Uh, and it seemed to be, he couldn't find out whether it was a hereditary heart rate or whether it was based around the fact that he had spinal meningitis, which they believe a lot of George's problems, such as the deafness, um, be, being mute and um, his headaches and his rages—they reckon it was all caused by the spinal meningitis, which had done a lot of damage by the time he got the antibiotics. Um, another thing that I, I thought I'd mention in that—I mentioned this on on the Murder Mile True Crime podcast discussion group. Slurp of tea. Oh, it's cold. Ugh. Um, was what I tried to do on all these podcasts is. Try and get the details as accurate as possible, not just about the murder, not just about the people, not just about the clothes they're wearing, things like that, but also the weather report. Um, So, for example, on this one, uh, I knew exactly what day it was and where everyone was based. So uh, because the Met Office, the British Met Office, have a very good kind of historical um, backlog of kind of... All, the, all their data since... I can't remember when the Met, Met Office originally started, but, you know, um, weather information has been kept for hundreds of years in this, in this uh, country. So what I did was I went back to the day of the murder, uh, checked for London, and it said it was overcast. It had been raining for about three or four days prior, but it had gone into a typical British drizzle, and there was a bit of a light frost as well. So I put that into the podcast. That's what I like to do is if... If the weather says it's stormy and wet, I'll put in stormy and wet if it's bright and hot, I'll put in bright and hot. The only time i've I've done that with all the previous podcasts. The only time I didn't do that was in the Martin Vick Magnuson one whereas if you noticed at the end as uh her father was coming back over to the United Kingdom, I put in um the sounds of kind of wind and rain and thunder and that wasn't the weather for that night that was really a kind of a recollection back to the beginning of the story when you know we were talking about that uh, her father uh, Martin vick Magnussen's father when he, she was born it was windy and rainy and he was driving his car at super fast feet speed to get to Oslo hospital to make sure his daughter was born uh, so that was just a a, a reflection I reflected it in the end of the story, just so it it would trigger something in your brain. Uh, But apart from that, that's what I try and do in all of these episodes, is to um, try and get things accurate. Um, Another thing that was accurate um, was uh, 12 Brewer Street. So although it is now called Soho Original Bookstores, and was originally prior to that called Doc Hollywood's Love Shop and Cinema, nice title um it, it wasn't in 1963 so i think i might have mentioned it in this podcast but i'm not no actually i might have edited it out i can't remember i will i will look but uh, number 12 Brewer street on the ground floor back in october 1963 was a shop called soho money savers uh, and what it did was it sold discounted household items such as uh, pledge ajax and brillo pads Mm. Which is uh, very interesting. So, so it, uh, even though the street was full of um, prostitutes and uh, there were some sex shops, but not many because it was still very much frowned on. Uh, there, there, there was still it was all kind of remember in the uh, Richard Rhodes Henley case, loads of bookshops, inverted commas, bookshops of which in the back there would be kind of mucky magazines it was uh, but this was soho money savers i'm trying to find a bigger picture of soho money savers on um on the uh, murder mile true crime podcast discussion group and on especially with uh, if you're a patreon supporter as well i will be posting loads of crime scene photos uh I'll do a side-by-side, I'll try and do a side-by-side one of the door that you entered through, because the door still looks the same today, Uh, except today it's kind of brown, uh, brown wood instead of a dark black, but you can get, you can see a little bit of Soho money savers there, which is quite interesting, and there's some crime scene photos, some of them are are unpleasant, so I I do warn you now about that. Um, They, obviously they have, uh, they've done a plan of the flat, so you can see Uh, where he came up the stairs and when he went in there's uh, a nice shot of the door that Rosa O'Neill opened to welcome George in and the door that she shut him out of and you can see all of his very bloody handprints on the door Um, and there's a couple of photos there as well which uh, I warn you aren't pleasant now which is Rosa O'Neill lying on the bed she's got the kind of the flannel on her forehead because she was was burning up, Uh, I think it was Sophie that um, housekeeper who put the flannel on her, her head, um, or it could, or it might have been Mrs. Yvonne Platel, who was actually the neighbour upstairs. I didn't add her into the story because that's, you've already been introduced to Sophie, and I thought why introduce you to Mrs. Levon, uh, Yvonne Yvonne Platel who lived on the second floor? It just kind of threw things off, um, and. So there is a photo of Rosa O'Neill lying on the bed with a duvet on top of her. Uh, she's partially naked, and you can see that she's got a lot of stab wounds on her to her arms, and, and it's uh, it's there that she died. Uh, but I warn you now, it's not pleasant. And in the corner of the shot, if you look carefully, you can see the um, the knife that George dropped. He dropped it uh, in the bedroom just by a little armchair. No, a little wooden chair. So, you, you, But you've got to look closely for that. Anyway, those were the crime scene photos on... Uh, instagram i'll put some on instagram and on on facebook as well but extra stuff for people who are uh, patreon listeners haha so rosa o'neill um normally i'd go into a back history about the victim that i'd normally do this time i decided not to uh not because i didn't sympathize with her at all but just because it was really difficult to find information about rosa um so rosa's real name not rosa o'neill her real name was uh (coughs) <coughs> Excuse me. Rosa Michalu. Uh She was born sometime in the end of 1921, which means she was 42 years old, uh, originally from Poland. She married a gentleman called Bernard Joseph O'Neill. Uh, he was born in 1904. So he was 15 years older than her. Uh, he was Irish, a market trader uh, who lived at 251A West End Lane in West Hampstead. Um, now, they married in October 1958, so she'd been married five years, um, but it's stated that they didn't live together and they pretty much had nothing to do with each other since the date of their marriage. Uh, so that would suggest that he was paid, um, or she, she'd she paid him to marry her so she could get a passport to move into the country, uh, or it was probably arranged for her. There was a lot of that going on around the time, uh, a lot of... Um, illegal marriages to uh, allow people uh, passports to come into the country uh but uh, from what we know uh, she knew george she liked him um she didn't mock him um she didn't pity him at all she was just just a very very nice lady and that's why he liked her he'd he'd been and seen her several times he says five or six times uh, which is why he knew where she lived he knew the door um although quite why he killed her we don't know it's weird that being f- so full of rage and alcohol and hatred, especially for himself, and wanted, wanted to take... <coughs> that is a coot. For those who listen a lot, that is a coot. That's not the coot. That's that's not Don Juan the coot. That's just coot. And this one is not as noisy as uh, the others. Um. So, yeah, no, he'd been full of rage and alcohol and he tried to kill himself so many times, and yet it doesn't make sense why why at that point they said literally as soon as he walked through the door he'd barely, he barely—he hadn't even been there a minute and he said he just went berserk his rage just erupted and he stabbed Rosa to death multiple times we don't know why he doesn't know why Rosa won't know why people around him just don't know why it's its its baffling it's one of those mysteries uh, so yeah we will never ever know um thought I'd dive in a little bit more information on the end of the story, <coughs> which was uh, the death of George Thomas Pickering. Um, this was quite interesting because I was going through the case file, uh, the original police investigation file, uh, the death of Rosa O'Neill about George uh, Pickering. And it was kind of un. Uncon- unconclusive for me, cause he it, it was kind of he didn't get executed, he didn't say why he did it because he didn't know and it was kind of for me it was I was like, mm, I didn't really feel that there was a there was an ending to it. So I simply just sat there and I was just like, right, well, I'm in the archives anyway, let's just type in George's name. And then it was like oh another murder case. It was another manslaughter case with George's name three uh, four years later. And I was like, oh that's fantastic. And it was like oh, George has been murdered in prison. Oh my god, that's fantastic. So I couldn't go into it in this story but i'll go through as much as i can with it now so uh where were we so um uh, so this was all inside wormwood Scrub- scrubs prison he was originally sentenced to uh Wandsworth prison but they moved into wormwood scrubs um now, obviously, he was looking for alcohol. He needed alcohol to quell his headaches. Uh, now, um, he hadn't been poisoned by people. Uh, well, technically he had. But he, he hadn't been deliberately poisoned by people. This is what I thought at the start. I thought, oh, my God, the, the, the three pe- pe- these people have been charged with his manslaughter. They must have poisoned him. But it wasn't. They were making illegal uh, booze. Uh, so what happened is they were having what's called a drink-up session, which is... Uh, hang on. Let me back up a bit. Let me back up a bit all my details are here so there were three let me check There was a couple of men involved so there's uh gerald France, francis george creed of coventry who was gas fit at age 23 um he was found guilty of previously of receiving stolen goods he had a string of offenses uh, mostly for burglary and housebreaking and he was in prison for six years with wounding with intent using a knife there's another man called Howard Henry Mitchell, He was 32, who was a laborer, He um, had a string of minor offenses, mostly for motor vehicle theft and uh, stealing scrap metal. Uh, but he'd been imprisoned for murder at the time, and Alan Frederick Potter, 32, a company director ooh, um, who was what was he charged for? Uh, who, for charged for forging documents uh, oh and seven years for manslaughter for strangling uh, a girl in Leicester. Mm, very unpleasant man now uh Alan Frederick Potter was actually working in the tailor's shop at that time um now the tailor was away that week, so another man was put in charge of kind of ordering supplies now w uh junisol which was the copier fluid, is basically a transfer fluid that I mentioned that uh, was used uh it was a duplicating fluid. Uh, as used in copying machines. And basically what they would do is when you've um, when you've created a shape for kind of uh, prison uniforms, because obviously everyone has different shapes and sizes, you'd use the Junisol uh, to transfer that... Oh, people who know embroidery probably can say this better than I can. Uh, basically, you put the shape onto the material, then you can cut round it afterwards. That's really what the Junisol is for. Um, and because... The uh, the tailor was away that week. Uh, Alan Frederick Potter was responsible, or one of the people responsible, for ordering new stocks, uh, and he actually deliberately over ordered on the Junisol. And so, what they they would do is they'd get this uh, Junisol, uh, which, as I said, is about thirty seven percent methylated spirits and acetone and thirty seven percent methyl alcohol and then mix it with orange juice uh it'd be pretty lethal pretty lethal stuff stuff so you'd uh, you would drink it in small small, uh, small quantities uh and it's what people would do you you would sell it uh two pints of that you'd sell for an ounce of tobacco and this was kind of very normal thing that would happen in prisons it was illegal but a lot of people would do it and they would have a regular drink up session so they'd basically go into uh a cell uh when none of the uh prison guards were watching you pull out your your bottle have a big old drink up and everyone would get really pissed and obviously if you hide it well enough the prison guards wouldn't know what you were doing um obviously george he was about 30 by that by that age he'd suffered with headaches since the age of four so that's 26 years always looking for something to cure his headaches he'd always been a drinker to try and cure these headaches as well um now, they were in D-Wing in the rec room. They were, they were getting massively pissed. Uh, they said that George, over dinner, he was uncontrollable. He was a real mess. He was stumbling everywhere. There was about four different people um, who were in a real mess that night. They really, they really had gone absolutely bloody bonkers on it. Uh, I'm just going through my notes at the moment. Uh, so, I haven't got their names here. This is really annoying. Uh, or oh, it's here but I can't find it so at 9.30am on the 15th of May 1967 uh, Pickering was admitted to Wormwood Scrub bay, complaining of vague pains in his head and stomach, mild dizziness blurred vision, uh, very rapid breathing, uh, Dr. Patrick Gullway, the medical officer at HMP Wormwood Prison um, then admitted uh, Pickering to uh, Hammersmith Prison for further tests um, by which by which time by the e- well the evening he is physically deteriorated severely and w- had to be readmitted to Hammersmith Hospital now there was a, another prison officer a prison officer a prisoner involved in the drink up called Patrick Willis now uh, I think there was four in total who were uh, had to be sent into hospital because they they were all suffering with the symptoms that I meant to, mentioned about before so inflammation of the stomach headaches um, Patrick Willis temporarily went blind uh, on account of drinking this Junosol and um, orange juice mix. But all the three other prisoners managed to survive um, because they vomited. It, it was so bad and toxic to their stomach that they were just constantly vomiting. Um, it doesn't actually say whether Patrick Willis, Willis was permanently blind, but everyone else managed to they survived. They got well. There was a little bit of damage, but they survived. They uh, managed to get through it um but george didn't and the problem was obviously george had been drinking and drinking and drinking so far throughout his life to cure his headaches that his body was really used to uh high levels of alcohol and being in prison used to this thing like drinking Junisol, so his body was used used to it so it it didn't vomit at all he didn't throw up he didn't chuck up all these toxins in his body his body just absorbed them and as the more alcohol he absorbed the worse he got so he went through a series of they say in a, a inflammation of the lower gullet inflamed stomach waterlogging of the lungs he died by po- poisoning by methyl alcohol uh, and his symptoms included severe abdominal pain blindness respiratory failure coma and death so that was the end of george uh they they said here that he was in d d wing uh in the rec room for a uh, dinner uh pickering ran to the dinner table stumbled and fell flat onto his face um another prisoner uh, osborne his name was i haven't got his surname first name here i uh, was sick three times three to four times which saved his life but obviously george didn't um all the men involved in that drink up uh, pleaded not guilty to manslaughter and they were found not guilty as well because obviously they didn't force the drug uh the drink into george george just kind of drank it himself uh so they were i think they were found guilty for create i can't remember what it was called i haven't got it i've got it written i've got so many notes on this case that i i was planning to do a big thing on it but i just ran out of time i, I ran out of time and thought it's not really that important that we get the full details on how George killed himself. Uh but anyway, they were not found guilty of his manslaughter. Uh and George was buried inside the inside Wormwood Scrub's prison. So, uh I thought I'd get uh, an interesting little uh, diversion here. So, uh last not last week's case, the case before Helen Mary Pickwood, the abortion case. Um Now, obviously, I'd done a lot of uh, research into that. It's a story that is very rarely told. uh, And I had to go back and find the original files and dig into it deep. And I found a lot of information about Captain Edward Gerard Tickle, which was interesting about him. But I didn't really get to find out a lot of information about him after the murder. It kind of it was kind of hard to track down. Uh, And this is where uh, a big thank you goes out to Matt C on Twitter. Thank you, Matt. Uh, Matt posed the question, um, because he, he listened to the details about Captain Edward Gerard Tickle. And he went, is this um, Gerard Tickle, the Irish writer? Now, interestingly, in that episode, I deliberately left a couple of things out. Uh, and one of the things was that um, Captain Edward Gerard Tickle had just really started his writing career by that point. Um, he was writing books. That was his focus. He he wanted to be a novelist. Um and one of his first books, which I'll mention very shortly, uh, was actually used to fund the abortion for Helen Mary Pickwood. Um, so let me go through what, what, what we managed to find online. Interestingly, there, there's a, uh, there was a Wikipedia page. You know I hate Wikipedia, but you know what? In a case like this, I'm going to use it. Because uh, it's details that I just don't have. Um, so, um, Captain Edward Gerald Tickle he is the Irish writer Gerard Tickle uh which is hence why Helen referred to him as Gerard he hated being called Edward uh he was born in Dublin educated in Tipperary in London uh as we rightfully said, he joined the Royal Army Service Corps in 1940 and com- was commissioned in 1941. Yeah, that's all correct. Thank you very much. <laughs> he was appointed to the war office. They don't mention, they obviously don't mention about the, uh, um, what's it called? What was the place? I see my brain is gone because I'm not working on that case anymore. The uh, place in Liverpool. They mentioned the war office. He was based in Liverpool for most of it. Uh, between 1943 and 45. his uh, duties, this is after the death of uh, Helen Mary Pickwood duties took him to Africa, the Middle East Washington DC, Canada, the West Indies and Europe and he was appointed general staff in 1945 he was married to the author and physical researcher René Haynes Uh, the daughter of eminent English social moralist ESP Haynes and Oriana Huxley Waller granddaughter of Thomas Henry Huxley and they had three sons Crispin, Patrick, and Tom. All done. See that? Okay, now, uh, Tickle wrote 21 novels, including his best selling Appointment with Venus in 1951, uh, which was made into a film of the same name, starring David Niven. uh, And in 1962, Danish film Venus. I can't pronounce that. That's in Danish. Blah. See, if I would have rehearsed this, I would know how to pronounce that. Uh, He had uh, several uh, non fiction books, including a memoir of F.S. Oe agent Odette Hallowas, uh, and a uh, and a history of Winston Churchill's personal transport aircraft. Uh, now they briefly mention a scandal in there, which is uh, apparently was I haven't read it, but apparently a book by Matthew Sweet called uh, "The West End Front," which gives details of. Uh, the family incident which they call it uh and G- uh gerard facing a trial at the old bailey but they don't really go into much details uh, about it but yeah um so uh gerard has two surviving sons uh one is sir crispin tickle uh formerly britain's pre um uh, permanent representative of the united Ta- nations and tom tickle former, former guardian newspaper columnist columnist mm interesting now um now um george gerard george gerard oh i'm looking at the two cases at the same time uh captain tickle uh wrote a book called soldiers from the wars returning in 1942 and this was the book that he got his um he got the upfront fee from the publisher and that's th- the book that he wrote that he used the money to fund the abortion. Hmm. Interesting. I know. So, uh, so thanks to Matt C for that. That was, uh, that was a nice little scoop. Obviously I I should have done. I, 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 didn't think about searching Gerard Tickle. I just thought Captain, I thought Captain Edward Tickle, you would find everything you need there or Captain Edward Gerard Tickle. But obviously I didn't think about searching Gerard Tickle. But, um, I posted a photo of him on uh, the Murder Mile True Crime podcast discussion group. It's a photo of uh, Gerard Tickle later in life. It's it's from the back of his books. Uh, It's his author's picture. He looks to be in his early to mid forties, probably four yeah mid forties ish. Uh, So have a look at him there. Uh, He's he's balding uh he's got the kind of the the tufts around the side of his head he's got a kind of a pointy nose and he's got the smug face that you would expect uh he's not a, he's not a super handsome man but he's, he's he's probably got the confidence and the charm to carry it off uh so i thought that was interesting even though uh i won't add this to the end of the other podcast this is just for you guys to add that there so obviously if, if uh anything crops up in later episodes to do with previous cases I'll bring it back in um I don't know why I haven't done this there, uh, there, there's uh Bobby on uh the Facebook group thanks Bobby he, he gave me a new way of edit of ending the show unfortunately I haven't written it here so I don't know I don't know what Bobby said so I apologize for that um what I'm going to do on this end of this podcast is because many of you have asked about the uh the music that goes with the podcast. Uh, I'm going to do an episode shortly, or when we do the extra miles, I'm going to do uh, two episodes. Uh, one about the sound effects for Murder Mile, and one about the music for Murder Mile. Uh, and what I'll do is I'll end this episode by playing you the full version of what is known as "Man in, Man in a Bag" uh, by Cult with No Name. Uh, they're the guys who write most of the music for the podcast. Um, and man in the bag is the theme tune that you all kind of know that you've kind of used to by now but i thought i would play it in full with the um with all the lyrics so you can hear it in full it's the story of oh, i should have written it down i didn't like an idiot uh the uh analyst is his name gareth jones or gareth gareth williams I think it's Gareth Jones. Uh, I'll have to check this out. Um, who um, who was found inside a bag inside his bedroom in Pimlico uh, only a couple of years ago, and they're not too sure whether it was a sex game gone wrong or whether he, there were extra information that he had found because he worked for uh, MI6, so obviously Britain's secret service. He was an analyst on that. Whether he'd found out information that he shouldn't shouldn't have done, and then been uh, assassinated by being put. Put into a bag and suffocated. Uh, so that's what the story is about, that's what the song is about, hence it's called Man in a Bag. Uh, so I'll play that at the end of this, uh, unless I forget. I'll probably forget. Um, <laughs> um. So thank you to everyone for your kind messages about previous episodes, especially the uh, Helen Pickwood episode and the Larry Winters one, uh, which is literally as I'm recording it now, it's just going out. This is Thursday morning. uh, So the Larry Winters episode is just going out now as I record this. Uh, So thank you, everyone, for your kind messages. Um, It's very much appreciated. Uh, As I've said before, being a podcaster is quite a lonely thing. You know, you sit there, I'm i pretend i'm talking to you but really i'm talking to a microphone right now uh, and it's many 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 hours a week just sitting alone researching alone writing alone editing alone and then you send it out and you know it, it kind of disappears into the ether half the time so you know it's really nice when people take take like a, a couple of seconds or two just to say hey i really enjoyed that podcast it really does give us a lift and it means a hell of a lot um so and obviously over, over like a year of being, doing podcasting, I've seen a lot of podcasters just give up. I've seen a lot of them give up. Um, and it's not just because it takes up a lot of time. You know, you're trying to hold down a full-time job and do a podcast as well. But there's a lot of trolls out there, a lot of arseholes who have nothing better to do with their lives than, than say to people, you're shit, you're terrible. And do you know what? Some podcasters do take it to heart uh even even in in my case like on the, the first day that i made it into the top of the itunes top 50 which is very exciting in that first day i got 10 one-star reviews yeah i rarely I get one-star reviews but instantly they all they were like oh quick i hate this people were like i hate this instantly it's like just because they were being told by itunes hey you should listen to this so there's a lot of shit bags out there so conversely if you have a favorite podcast tell the podcaster about it just doesn't matter what forum you use whether email or or uh on facebook or even like it on any of the facebook forums just post on the hey i really love this podcast you know it really means a lot to them and it can make the difference between this podcast being there next week and not it really is a fine line between a podcaster just just one week just saying i just can't be asked anymore because don't forget, we we don't get paid for this, and uh, it's it's hard work. So, whew, I need to get a cold drink. That was hard work. I uh, hope you enjoyed that. That was um, that was dear yeah, episode thirty nine. Things are cracking on, aren't they? Uh, that's episode thirty nine. Uh, next week's episode was going to be the the murder of the boxer Freddie Mills, uh, but. The BBC, in their infinite wisdom, have just done a documentary called Murder in Soho, I know, Murder in Soho, uh, The Life and Death of Freddie Mills. Uh, So what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave my episode a bit. I'm going to let that fester for a bit, let their documentary fester for a bit. Uh, I'm going to watch it as well. I want to see what they say about the murder. Some people have fed back to me already and said it wasn't very good. Uh, I thought it might be a botched job. Uh, and then I will come back with the uh, Freddie Mills episode soon. It's an interesting one. I, I quite like the case. Although I have a very different perspective on what I believe the documentary is. Mm. Uh, anyway, that was Murder Mile for, uh and Extra Mile for episode 39. Uh, the murder of George Thomas Pickering. The, the murder of Rosa O'Neill by George Thomas Pickering. Uh, hope you enjoyed that. I'm not going to waffle on. I'm going to end it right here. Thank you so much. And I'll see you next week.
2: Bye.
1: Play Cut With No Name music.
2: Once there was a man, at least that's what I'm told, inside of a zipped-up bag, wearing nothing but Schrodinger's clothes, but how to get...